Holmes. We are back with another very special stay-at-home self-quarantine episode of the BrandoCast. And for the first time ever, we are doing what I would call a breakfast show. Meaning that we are recording at 9 o'clock in the morning here in the city of Angels. And there's only one gentleman that I would be willing to get up early in the morning, have a couple cups of coffee, and sit down to talk about bullshit. And that is the funniest man in Southern California. Though he is originally from Canada, you know him, you love him. There might be a couple Rob Cohens in your life, but there's only one true Rob Cohen. And that is the Rob Cohen that I have on the Brando cast today. Good morning, sir. Good morning to you, Brendan. What an intro. How could we possibly top that? Should probably uh, wrap the show. D- well, great. It was great talking to you. Nice uh, to meet good, you. Good luck with whatever you're working on right now. Best We to might you. as well just add some music to this and we're done. Yeah, fire it up. <laughs> I want to publicly thank Rob Cullen for coming on today with uh, Jimmy Pardo level equipment. He's got a gorgeous mic. He's got a headset. And that is because I believe you are working on your own podcast right now, correct? I'm, I'm noodling something now that's in the early stages. Yeah. So I'll, it's still being figured out. But um, yes, I, uh, I went on Amazon and purchased this equipment just to try it. And we'll see if it works. Early stages. I suffice to say, I think you sound better than me. Is that a Northwestern jersey that you're wearing? That is a Northwestern jersey. Go Cats. Wearing. Go yeah. Cats. Well, this is what I slept in last night. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> no, it's like just seeing the top of the N and the purple, I could right away, it's Northwestern. I'm a nerd. You know, and for people who've listened to this podcast before, if there's a drinking game built around this show, I guarantee you it's, uh, I, I went to Northwestern. So I was in Chicago, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Drink. Yeah, I know that campus very well. Oh, you do? Why? Uh, well, my my wife went there, um, but uh, uh, so I know The Rock that gets painted all the time, right, on the campus. Mm-hmm. The Gary Marshall building, the TV building way in the back mm-hmm. uh, on the lake gets freezing there in the winter in um, uh, Evanston, right? Mm-hmm. Amazing school. Okay. I, before I ask you about your wife going there, I sure. just want to tell the kids that the rock is this, it's literally a rock, but it, now it's probably 10,000 layers of paint. Mm-hmm. It was a rock that students started painting eons ago. It's a tradition. If you're in a fraternity or sorority, you got some dumb event, you take over the rock at night and you paint it and you put your stuff, you know, you put your, the thing that you're promoting on the rock. Um, Brendan Smith in the fall of 1986 painted a giant Van Halen and an Aussie on the rock. So at least I can say that. Yeah. So I Barry, the, rock, the rock is probably uh, two feet by three feet and the layers of paint are like 50 feet by 40 feet. When I saw it, it was gold. <laughs> now, when was, okay, I don't want to date your wife, but I graduated in 1990. So she was there at, long after me, correct? Uh, she was there before you. She graduated before you did. I did not know that. Yeah, in the theater program. Uh, which I was in, but um, if there were concerts going on, I was not in. Of course. <laughs> but you guys had the Meow Show. You had... Uh, so this is, we're going to lose every listener on during this part. It doesn't matter. What is the what's that famous show that they do? The WAMU there's the WAMU show which is yes. the musical show yes, and then there's yes. the Meow show right. which is the improv show that every fucking heavy hitter in the world exactly. every comedy head, heavy hitter that went to Northwestern was in the damn Meow show. Yeah. Colbert, uh, Seth Meyers, and a guest uh, star. Gostire. I yeah. mean just I mean it's it's an endless sea of people 
Um, and it's the heartbreak of my life that I didn't get in that show as a senior. Uh, I will tell you there were man tears that day yeah. when the cast list did not include Brandon Smith, even though I made it to final callbacks. Uh, so fuck you, whoever directed that show. Yep. Fuck you, Northwestern. <laughs> I think Jill Cargerman directed that my senior year. Oh, she's so, a piece of shit. Yeah. Fuck you, Jill. Yeah. Um, all right. On to more important things. Yes. How are you, sir? And what is going on in your life these days? I'm good. You know, uh, weird times, but um, everybody is uh, healthy. Um, you and you're I. So, not- you're so sad that Trump lost, aren't you? You know what? As a Canadian, uh, I'm so sad that uh, the, our greatest source of entertainment is supposedly going away. But I do get texts and emails from my friends and relatives up there every day who can't believe what's happening because here in the states we forget we're 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 just so numb to his bullshit and the whole administration's bullshit that it's normal to us but they see it and it's you know it's like a yard sale and they just can't believe what's happening so it's a disaster but happy he's going uh and as long as people uh friends and folks like yourself are healthy and finding a way to uh you know get through it and and I think being creative, like what you're doing with your podcast, things like that, when when this is over, everybody's going to really benefit by sort of being forced to hunker down and and uh, explore projects they really love. Uh, well said. Thank you. I mean, this for me, this podcast has been an absolute lifesaver. It's so easy to get people from around the country because we can just sit here. Um, you know, via Zoom or via Squadcast or ho- however we're doing these podcasts. But I honestly cannot wait to get into the situation where we're doing this in person. Of course. Because it, it's so fun and there's just a different way to play off each other in 3D. And and, and I really, really miss that. Um, so, you know, that's all I got to say about that. When do you think your particular podcast that you are secretly working on will be launched out into the world? If all continues as has been continuing, hopefully January. Okay. Uh, just want to get a couple more uh, under my belt and then get some other elements done. But uh, we'll see. It it could just be a gigantic waste of time. Okay. Well, I can't wait to do it. I know we're going to be able to record this soon. Yep. Uh, but in the meantime, I got you for the next uh, 52 minutes. As much as you need. There's no okay. clock. <laughs> so what we're going to do this morning, because um, Mr. Cohen is from Canada, we are going to talk today about one of my God bands, the sound that flows through my brain at all periods of time. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it's Rush, consisting of childhood buddies, Getty Lee, Alex Lyson, and the greatest drummer of all time, Neil Peart. Formed in 1968 in Toronto, the band went through several early configurations until arriving at its final lineup when Piert replaced original drummer John Retzi in July of 1974, two weeks before the group's first tour of the United States. And on that tour, they opened for Uriah Heep and Manfred Mann. To date, Rush have released 19 studio albums in five different decades. The group has been awarded 24 gold, 14 platinum, and three multi-platinum albums. Hated for decades by rock critics, Rush have been cited as a major influence on tons of rock bands, including the Chili Peppers, Anthrax, the Foo Fighters, the Smashing Pumpkins, Jane's Addiction, Metallica, Queensryche, and even the goddamn Pixies. Rush was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in the year of our Lord, 2013. Okay, Rob Cohen, do you have 
any connection to Rush the band. Well, I will say this. Uh, first of all, amazing intro. Uh, absolutely correct. Pound for pound, in my opinion, the greatest rock band uh, of our times. Uh, you cannot believe that three people made all that noise. Three people. Uh, incredible, kick-ass rock and roll. Just kneel on the drums. You can't believe that's one guy doing that. Uh, and for me, growing up in Canada, uh, they were the band because they're from Canada. And we had other bands like Triumph and other really great kick-ass bands. But Rush is the cream of the crop. And they were so uh, cool. I know this is a longer answer than you wanted, but they they blew the top of my head off when I remember uh, as a small, skinny, uh, persecuted Jewish boy in Calgary. Uh, when I first heard them, I couldn't believe it. It was like when I first saw SCTV or when I first saw Batman or the Six Million Dollar Man, it's like I couldn't believe this was existing on the same planet that I was. And I've had the, the incredible uh, privilege of meeting them twice and working with them on something. I can bore you about that later, but they are a powerhouse in every sense of the word. And the soundtrack of a lot of Canadians growing up, but absolutely my soundtrack would be, if it was two things, it would be uh, SCTV sketches and Rush music. You're my brother from another mother. I mean, that, that's, I mean, truly SCTV, because I was lucky because they played SCTV on, on the UHF channels in Pittsburgh in the mm -hmm. late 70s. Like somehow they got a hold of, of those tapes and played it all, like on like Channel 53 or whatever the fuck that was. But, um, and Rush was giant in Pittsburgh. Okay. Yeah. Before I ask you about what you worked on, because I'm super sure. jealous, give me a portrait of Calgary, of Rob Cohen's childhood Calgary. Because okay. Alex and Getty are from Willowdale in Toronto. Yep. I want to know about Calgary. Okay. Calgary uh, is like a polite version of the American Old West. <laughs> and it's uh, like if Denver and uh, Dallas or San Antonio uh, mixed. And it's at the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. So it's gorgeous, endless prairies, uh, beautiful um, and when I was growing up, there was a very small town. It was about 200,000 people, but spread out over 42 square miles. So, you know, big town. And it was an amazing place to grow up just because it was, you know, we had the run of the place. You could stay out until late and up there. It didn't get dark till 11 o'clock at night, especially in the summer. And you would just sort of run free. And um, I loved it. You know, you go to the lake in the summer, you go skiing in the winter and, uh, it's like uh, it has an Old West history. Um, so there's the Calgary Stampede. I don't know if people know what that is, but it's the world's biggest rodeo and sort of midway state fair thing. So it's a, you know, the symbol of the city is a white cowboy hat. So as you know, from visually knowing me for years, uh, you wouldn't expect to see me in a cowboy hat, but, <laughs> um, but it was just an awesome place to grow up. I loved it um, because it was just it was like every kid's dream, you know, you just go play anywhere, clean air, green, fun activities, this weird old West kind of thing. Uh, great city uh, on two rivers. Um, you know, I, I just a great, great town. 
Do you think that people in Calgary have sort of like a pride about being from Calgary versus, you know, we're Canadian or we're Calgarians first and then we're Canadians because it's so different than Montreal and, and Toronto? Yeah, I mean, like every country, there's sort of your uh, provincial mindset. You know, in Canada, there's literally provincial mindset. And if you're from Western Canada, you thought Eastern Canada was lame. You especially thought Montreal and Quebec and Quebec City, anything there was really lame. But then, of course, you have your internal struggles because Calgary hated Edmonton. And uh, <laughs> why, wait, know, why did Calgary hate Edmonton? Because they, they were the, the provincial capital. Uh, they, at the time when I was growing up, just to date myself, their Canadian Football League team, uh, Warren Moon was a quarterback. And they would kick ass all the time. They would win the Grey Cup, which is our version of this, the Super Bowl. And they were just always, we were the Chicago to their New York. That's how we <laughs> Okay, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. understood. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, it's just every, we uh, in Canada, there's so few big cities that whatever your identity is, you would really hang on to that. So ours was the Old West. And, uh, you know, Toronto's was basically the, the clean New York. So everybody just kind of hunkered down in their own little area. But yeah, it was just, you know, plus all, when I was growing up, there was a huge oil boom in Calgary. So there was money just racing in and, uh, you know, people that were hillbillies one day were the Beverly hillbillies the next day. And it was crazy, but, um, you know, it's, it's always still feels like a small Midwestern town. Would you write a Calgary hillbillies spec? I would not. <laughs> um, but, uh, I think that, you know, generally speaking, Canadians are introverts. Um, and they, the extrovert part comes out when somebody says something about Canada, uh, then a Canadian will challenge them. Or the thing that really drives Canadians crazy is if someone doesn't know a celebrity from Canada, because then you will see their eyes go red and their, their voice goes up a couple octaves and it's like, Jim Carrey's from Canada. How do you not know that? <laughs> so that, that is our kryptonite is how do you not know Lauren green? from Battlestar Galactica's Canadian. <laughs> well, I, I bet I knew that in uh, 1980 when I was in the Battlestar Galactica fan club. Oh, damn. Who else, who, what, besides yourself, what other celebrities are from Calgary? Uh, Faye Ray from the original King Kong is from Calgary. <laughs> uh, I think two of the kids in the hall, I want to say Kevin and Bruce, I believe, are from Calgary. What other celebrities were born in Calgary? I'm running out of modern-day celebs, but it's... You know, there's there's a ton from other places, but as far as born and raised in Calgary, I would have to say those are the ones that pop into my head. <laughs> it was a small town, you know, like it was it was a cowboy town. Yeah, understood. But you can't beat Fay Ray. So fuck yeah. off other cities and Canada. Yeah. Combining equal parts Genesis and Yes with Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin, Rush released their self-titled debut album in 1974 which included their first rock radio hit, Working Man. This was a single that was arguably broken by DJ Donna Halper at WMMS in Cleveland. The band followed their debut LP with Fly By Night in 1975 and then Caress of Steel, also in 1975. Both of those albums featured Neil Peart songs, which are heavily influenced by his love of fantasy, science fiction, and even Ein Rand. Oh, yeah. Okay, so let's get back to uh, the thing that I put a pin in. Sure. Just just make me angry. How did you work with Rush? Okay, well, I'll say I worked with them 
once, but I've met them twice. Okay. Uh, it was all in the last few years. So it was something that I'm still uh, embracing mentally. I was putting together this documentary for many years um, called Being Canadian. And it was sort of a, a comedic road trip explanation of me trying to figure out what it really means to be Canadian. So we were very lucky to get all these incredible Canadians to do interviews. And I took a road trip across Canada and um, we, the one thing we wanted more than anything was rush and I'm condensing a long story, mm -hmm. but we had asked through their PR and the proper channels and they were always busy or on tour. And it's one of those things that like you had just have to accept. It's not going to happen because we were about to finish the film and it was just going to go away. So I was working, shooting something. I want to stay on the Paramount lot. And I got a call from their publicist who said, are you available tomorrow between uh, like seven and eight? I was like, yeah, why? And she goes, they're going to be at the uh, Hotel Bel Air. Uh, they have an hour. If you can get there and get your crew, you can interview them. And I was like, Fred Flintstone feet. Like, how do I do this? <laughs> so I literally hung up my phone and had to pace around the lot, sort of calming myself down and trying to figure out like, because I'd been pursuing this in my head my whole life. But for this movie, like the clock was running out. So the crew, we scrambled and we booked this conference room. And again, I'm condensing a long story, but uh, we got there early uh, and set up in this room and the guys were not there. And so um, this amazing person who I've become friends with, who's their lawyer in Toronto, was also there. And he was my contact person. So I texted him and he said, they're in the bar. So I wanted them to finish their drink and do their thing. But now it was cutting into the hour that I've been given with them. So I very politely, of course, went into the bar and spotted them right away. And I couldn't believe it. And every person in the bar was just slack jawed like, they knew who they were. Like they couldn't believe these guys were just chilling out in the bar. So the end of the long story is I went over to introduce myself just to basically say, when you guys are ready, great geniuses, we are ready. And I would take five minutes with them. Like everything was set up. So they were so nice. They insisted that I sit down and have a couple drinks with them. The great part was I couldn't believe I was having some beers with Rush. But in my head, there was that clock. It's like, now the hour is 10 minutes. Now it's five minutes. My interview is basically going to be a still photo. And <laughs> so we had a couple of drinks and the lawyer guy kept making this gesture, which I'll explain because it's audio. He was just like, just relax. It's going to work out. It's going to work out. So uh, the end of the story is they said, hey, should we you want to go do the interview? And I was like, yeah. And I was kind of hammered, <laughs> um, which I thought was going to be bad. So I went to go pay for their drinks just to be polite. And they absolutely refused to accept it, but I'd already paid. So the very end of the story is we went to do the interview. And the first thing Neil said is like, that was so cool of you to pay for our drinks. You have us as long as you want. And so we were in there for a couple hours and they brought their dinner in there and they brought their food in. And it was uh, myself and Colin and Megan, the crew who are also Canadians could not believe that we were sitting with these guys. They were so nice. And the one thing the lawyer whispered to me in the ear is like, don't act like a fan. Just act like you're having a conversation. So externally, I'm like, hey, so blah, blah, blah. Here's my question. And in my head, it's just like, holy shit. So <laughs> it was trying to keep the veneer of cool. And uh, Colin, who was our producer, is a drummer. He brought a drum head just as a maybe Neil would sign it. And Neil insisted upon signing it and personalizing it and talking about drums. And they were... 
so nice. We took ridiculous photos of them with Canadian flags. They were hilarious. Um, it was genuinely uh, one of the most incredible experiences I had because they were so funny, so smart, um, so nice. And as a kid, the little me in Calgary couldn't believe I was there, but they had lived up to every expectation I had when I was a little kid and beyond it. So it was the satisfying wrap up of what I'd projected on these guys my whole life. Uh, the jealousy that is coursing through my <laughs> veins right now uh, might lead to an aneurysm. I mean, okay, that is cool. that is phenomenal. I just want to say to people out there, for those of us who are Rush nerds, this is why we love them, because it is a known thing uh, among Rush fans that they, they love their fans. Uh, and if you can talk to them as people rather than lunatics, they will talk to you. I have been told that Neil Peart, like you can approach Neil Peart almost anywhere. Don't talk about Rush. Talk about motorcycling. Talk about drumming technique. Talk about the wilderness. Hey, what back roads have you taken? And that guy will talk to you forever. Getty and Alex, known to be amazing. Yeah. Um, let me just say this. My only exper personal experience with Rush, I have said something to them. I was at, uh, they had a, a special screening of their phenomenal documentary, Beyond a Lighted Stage, at mm -hmm. the Arclight in Hollywood a couple years ago. And Alex and Getty were there afterwards for a Q&A. I was the first person who got to ask a question, wow. I think because I was wearing like a nerdy Rush baseball jersey, not just a uh, concert tee, but a baseball jersey. And the first thing I said to them was I, I thanked them personally for coming to Albuquerque, New Mexico, as they did on every tour mm -hmm. in the 80s. Because when I was a kid, I got to see them on the Moving Pictures Tour, the Signals Tour, wow. the Grace Under Pressure, all those afterwards. And to come to a little town like Albuquerque, it was a fucking huge deal. And Rush were huge in Albuquerque. And, and I forget, like, the oh, I know, I asked them a question about Ace Fraley because uh, they toured with Kiss early on and became friends with the guys in kiss, which doesn't make any sense, but, mm -hmm. but I, I, that's my only personal experience. God damn it. Rob Cohen. Don't you think that that's the approach with celebrities? You've been here a billion years. Celebrities are people and they just want to be talked to as people, not, uh, and not worshiped. Uh, well, some of them do, but the, the normal ones, you can have a conversation with anybody. If you just approach them as real people, you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I agree with that. Generally, I mean, I, I've been fortunate enough through work uh, and you and I have socialized in some interesting circles at times. I think, yeah, they, they just uh, it hope they're hoping that you're not walking up like, man, I got to tell you that scene in whatever. I think it's if you if you sort of it's an underhand pitch, but you're not there's no ulterior motive. I think it's just a normal, relaxing conversation. And I again, just getting back to Rush. I, even as I'm saying this to you now, because I knew you and I were going to be speaking, I found some photos of that interview session. And I can't believe that's me in the picture, because why would I ever be in a photograph with them that I didn't, you know, cut out and take double-sided scotch tape to like a psychopath. But they were so relaxing that to their credit, because they've, they've done a million interviews and it was that natural situation, not even just being Canadian, but it's like, why do I deserve to be here talking to these guys? And that went out of my head because they were so nice and engaging. It wasn't an act that it actually allowed me to get the job done that I needed to do. But at the same time, have this life experience 
with these three gentlemen that were so funny that Anil, like he was hilarious. I expected him to be very quiet, but they, it was like my brain was cut in half where this half was in the present and the other half was, you know, at a poker game in uh, my friend Ward's basement back in junior high cranking rush. I just can't imagine how those two halves came together. Uh, But it was, they're just such pros. I think they're obviously musicians, pros as musicians, but just as people, as nice people, like they have nothing to prove. And they were just, I was so, I was truly touched at how gracious they were. That's amazing. And also the fact that you, you keyed in on their sense of humor, which is also another among rush fans. It's another reason why we love them so much because they bring a sense of humor to nearly everything they do. I mean, if people from the outside think that, Oh, here's a here's a band that's just singing about Ayn Rand and the fountainhead and, uh, by tour and the snow dog and 2112. And what the fuck does that mean? But they bring so like humor is such a huge part of their shows. Absolutely. When to tie second city and rush together, I remember on the grace under pressure tour when count Floyd, Joe Flaherty from SCTV introduces the group via video before the song, the weapon. I mean, my, uh, my 14 year old brain, uh, broke in half. But they also do funny films all the time for their tours. Uh, uh, they, they're genuinely funny, and I'm not claiming to know them, but in my brief experiences, like you can tell that they have a very dry sense of humor and that they love comedy stuff. Like There's nothing ironic about them. They're just three guys that just happen to be hilarious and kick the shit out of every other band on the planet. <laughs> In the mid-70s, album sales were light for Rush, and the band was seemingly left for dead by their label, Mercury Records. Still, they fought off pressure to write radio-friendly hits, and instead, the band focused on the creation of their seminal record, 2112, which opens with the 20-plus-minute 2112 Overture. Released in April of 1976, 2112 was a major hit with fans, and Rush never looked back. The rest of the 70s saw constant touring and two more successful records for Rush, Farewell to Kings in 77 and Hemispheres in 1978. Both albums feature Rush's signature time changes, heavy prog rock elements, and Peart's fantasy themes. Can people see the doc? How can people see your your doc, your, your Canadian doc? I mean, if they really want to have an overwhelming sense of nausea, they could find it uh, multiple places. Um, it's called Being Canadian. It came out five years ago, but it's still on Amazon. And, uh, you know, you can download it. It's like Google Play, iTunes, all those places. It's shockingly still being watched in uh, some places. But, you know, it's like a small homemade project. It was like a, a personal, we paid for it ourselves and it took a couple of years to make, but um, uh, yeah, it's on iTunes and Amazon and all those other places. Now you as a creative type, is that a project that you had been thinking about for most of your creative life or was it something that sort of came to you later? It came to me later in the game because, um, you know, down here in LA, there's a lot of other Canadian, uh, comedy writers and actors and, you know, you naturally just find one another. It's like the way Northwestern people find each other. And, um, so the one thing that we would always talk about as do I think every Canadian is like, 
you try to explain, like when I would be in a writer's room, it would take a couple of weeks, but I would say something like, I'd say, you know, out or sorry, or, and they go, everybody would freeze and they go, wait a minute, are you Canadian? And it would blow their mind because I look American and I sound American and they clearly had some perception that I was American, but the fact that I wasn't would freak them out and they couldn't understand that. And so the same experience was had with so many other Canadian writers and actors that after a while is like, how do you explain what it means to be Canadian? And so about, I don't know, like, uh, 10 years ago, uh, 11 years ago, I just thought, what if I try to explain it in a, a doc? Because I wanted to just make a sort of light, amusing documentary. And then it kind of grew into this larger thing. But yeah, it sort of was me trying to answer the question for myself, as well as a, a comedic exploration. So it was a very challenging process, as you know, doing a doc. I'm glad it's done, but I'm so glad that we did it. And we had an amazing team of people that did it. That's fantastic. I want people to go check that out, by the way. Quick tangent. Now, this brings up an important, another important question. How does a boy uh, from Calgary migrate to Los Angeles? You uh, get kicked out of your house when you're 15. You uh, live in an apartment and forget that you have to pay the bills every month. So then you take a bunch of horrible jobs and steal gasoline out of used car lots to fuel your 75 Dodge Dart Swinger special with a slant six engine. Uh, and then you uh, remember that your cousin lives in Van Nuys. And since your life is going down the crapper in Calgary, why not take a road trip to visit your cousin uh, with none of your possessions because you don't have any? And so uh, I basically came down here just to visit my cousin and hang out for a couple weeks on his couch. And then that grew to a couple months. And then I had to get out of there and just then met uh, a friend of his that he had gone to school with and she and I hit it off. So now I realized I can stay in Calgary and do nothing or I could stay in LA and do nothing. Uh, there's this lovely young lady and she and I are hanging out. So basically I was here illegally for eight years working a variety of insane under the table jobs. And then it's just, you know, as, as LA, the place where you cannot track time, the years went on. I somehow fluked my way into uh, being a TV writer and here we are. What, <laughs> what was your first, what was your first official paycheck as a creative type? Uh, my first official paycheck was I got a job as a PA on the Tracy Ullman show. <laughs> uh, uh, because I delivered soup to the producers uh, not far from where you live, Brandon. Mm -hmm. um, and he liked the way that I delivered soup to him at two in the morning. And then he would pay me an extra $20 in cash if I stood there while he complained about his ex-wife. So then uh, he offered me a job as a PA and I didn't know what that meant, but then took the job. And that was sort of what got me in the door, which I, I'm forever grateful for. It was was the Tracy Ullman show a positive work environment or was it a little wonky? I had a blast because I had no idea what it was like to work on a TV show at all. There were some wonky moments for sure, but I will say everybody there was incredibly nice. They helped me get going as a writer. There were some insane parties that will provide stories till the end of time. And uh, Tracy was amazing. And um, yeah, I was there for two and a half years as a PA. Amazing. So you did, you had the mythical jump from the PA on the set who people like, and someone says, Hey, why don't you take a swing at this? Or uh, do you have anything to read, Rob? I mean, did it kind of work out like that? No, uh, it was the opposite because I am incompetent. 
Um, I still to this day don't know how to type. I hunt and peck. So the very quick version of the story is I my job was to clean up after the writers left. And one night they weren't leaving because they couldn't crack this joke. So like an idiot, I just scribbled down some jokes that I thought might be funny, but I was terrified to give them to them because I was sure I was going to get fired. And one of the guys came out of the writer's room to get something to drink. And I was like, look, you know, I'm I, sorry, I don't mean to intrude, but maybe what about this? And he's like, yeah, I like this joke. So they used it. And I was thrilled because I got to go home early because they got to leave. And then that kind of happened a few more times. And I thought maybe I should try to learn what a script is. So I would go in at night and on the weekends and taught myself how to hand type and hand format scripts, uh, hunting and pecking, and then wrote a sketch that I spent probably three months polishing because I was terrified and it looked like a maniac. It was like a manifesto from some bomber. And, uh, one of the guys liked it and they bought it for the show, uh, which gave me, I think it was like $600. I'm sure I was ripped off. And, uh, <laughs> then that led to me weirdly getting an agent. So I was represented by CAA, but still a PA getting the, their lunch. And so that's kind of how it happened. Does that even happen anymore? Can it happen no, that way anymore? <laughs> I'm just grateful that it happened. And, um, y- weird stuff happens that leads to other things. And, um, again, that's why I'm so grateful to those guys. That is uh, fucking amazing. In 1980, Rush strayed a little bit from their late 70s formula with the more FM-friendly album, Permanent Waves, which features two rock radio classics, Free Will and Spirit of the Radio. It's in 1981, though, that Rush achieves its true position in the pantheon of great arena acts with the album, Moving Pictures, a record that many fans still cite as their favorite. Moving Pictures features the Rush classics Tom Sawyer, Limelight, YYZ, and Red Barchetta. And like I said, for um, 1981, Brendan Smith, God damn it, Tingley Coliseum in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Moving Pictures, Rush, forget it, it's oh over. God. So envious. Did you, uh, hey, did you get to see Rush in the in the 80s, in the early days, or? No, you know, the the bummer is, because I lived in Calgary, um, we didn't have, the, we had McMahon Stadium, which is where our, the CFL team played, which is an outdoor arena, uh, so they could only play there in the summer, but the problem was if they played in fucking Edmonton, they would skip Calgary usually because they'd already played Edmonton, so people from Calgary would drive to the bigger stadium uh, in Edmonton. Uh, and then we had this really tiny building called the Corral, which used to be an animal corral and uh, was too small. So I never saw them then. The only time that I've really seen them was their f- their final show here in L.A., like their final, final show. Yes, yes. Um, and, uh, you know, was thrilled to be able to go see that show. But that was really it. Uh, that's amazing. Well, that final show, I was there with my brother, Ryan Smith, who uh, I took to his first concert was me taking him to the Signals tour. Shout wow. out to my brother, who's a colossal Rush nerd as well. Um, but uh, we didn't know that that show at, that show at the forum uh, in 2015 was going to be the final Rush show ever. Yep. Yep. Um, I think a lot of us were still holding out hope that there would be, uh, and I'll get into this later about the history of Rush. I think we were all holding out hope that. Um, they would basically do a thing where they would play a couple shows in LA or a couple shows in New York or a couple shows in Toronto uh, because Neil Peart was struggling with uh, severe arthritis at the time. All right. I know I want to know young Rob, he's in LA. He's where's your first apartment after you, uh, after you have a couple pennies in your pocket, where do you choose to live? 
Um, my first apartment was on a street called Galt Street in Van Nuys, uh, near where Farrell's Ice Cream Parlor used to be. And uh, it was Farrell's Ice Cream Parlor and a hospital. And it was in the middle of a gang area. And um, I remember that my monthly rent was $300 cash uh, to the guy there for a room. Um, and uh, that was it. That was my the my first sweet pad was me and the cockroaches uh, in northern Van Nuys. Northern Van Nuys kids, not not the the part of uh, Van Nuys where Ventura Boulevard cuts. That's right, North Northern Van Nuys. Yeah, North yeah. Van Nuys. <laughs> All right, so where's your upgrade? Where do you where where does a fancy young Rob get to go to? Do do you move to Hollywood to the greater Hollywood area ever? Uh, I stayed in the eight one eight for many many years. I nice. bounced around the valley, uh, nice. Tarzana, Encino, Woodland Hills, uh, Reseda, all the hits. <laughs> um, but I was in the Valley cause it was just cheaper and a lot of jobs I had were in the Valley and, uh, I had my crappy 75 Dodge dart, as I mentioned. So it was really, that was my world was just, um, 818 all the way. I, and then <laughs> I moved to, uh, 310 after that, but that was a long time after that. Um, now uh, not to, not to be linear about everything, but what, what becomes your first fancy job? Your first official job as a writer, writer outside of the Tracy Ullman show. Uh, well, the first writing job I got outside of that show was they had started the Simpsons and, um, they were, uh, promoting this music video called do the Bartman, uh, which I don't know if people remember, but it was a dance, uh, music video with Bart dancing that, uh, co-starred Michael Jackson. And, uh, I'm dating myself. So they, the writers approached me and said, Hey, do you want to write the intro for Bart? That's going to be on MTV for the debut. I'm actually four feet away from me to the left. I still have my copy of that paycheck, uh, $400 not to brag. Um, <laughs> so I basically had to write the intro for the MTV world premiere of a music video starring Bart Simpson and Michael Jackson. That was my, that would be my first professional paycheck. But, and, and you, thus you had arrived. <laughs> yeah, Exactly. Now, did that help you get, I, cause I do believe that you spent some time on the Simpsons. Is that the thing that helped you get to the Simpsons eventually? Uh, well the Simpsons, uh, a lot of the writers in the, it was the same production company. So they transferred a lot of people over as the Tracy Ullman show was going down, switched a lot of people over. So it was the same company that had produced Tracy Ullman produced the Simpsons. Oh, wait, am I dumb? Did, did the, the, the very original Simpsons shorts, were they yeah. featured on the Tracy Ullman yeah. show? That's where it started. Duh. It was the bumpers between the sketches. Oh, okay. And they were sort of primitive. I mean, the the, the, the look, very primitive, right? Oh, very. my God. Yeah. Can we just say, there's nothing like The Simpsons. It's been on since the 50s. I know. It's uh, My brother, he's a writer there. He's been there, I think, 17 years. Good God. Uh, but the show's been on 31 years, 32 years. It's ridiculous. Yeah, because I remember having a Bartman t-shirt. Yeah. Uh, in college, yeah. it, it was it was it was a picture of Bartman. Yep, Bart Bart in the fucking his little Batman outfit or with the purple Batman outfit or whatever that was. Yeah, and it said Bartman Cub fan. Yep, which was a play on uh, Harry Carey's uh, Cub fan Budman thing. Yeah, whatever. But not blah, Steve blah, blah. Bartman. But not Steve Bartman. No, that was very many years later. Got it. That was long after I left Chicago for me to come out to Los Angeles, you know, to conquer Los Angeles with my incredible skills as a as a comedic actor. 
and uh, a which, lovemaker. Which, of course, I achieved uh, on a monolithic uh, level. Brandon, so. let's <laughs> come on. Let's talk about it. It's clearly bothering you. <laughs> you are you are beloved. You are hilarious. I met you many, 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 many years ago. <laughs> you were uh, greatly appreciated then, and and uh, you have you have some awesome people that you've worked with a million times. Yeah, you're a legend. And uh, you and I met, I think, in the '90s, right? We did. We met in the mid '90s. Yeah. Um, and there was a, a person who you had dated, who I knew very well, and uh, we became friends uh, through that situation. I will not name names, but uh, I have, I've had, I have had the great pleasure of being around and working with some incredible people. I am yeah. the worst person in the city at networking and taking advantage of my relationships. I choose not to. <laughs> but that's smart. You don't want to, because I think there are people, everybody has a different viewpoint, but there are people that live to do that. And although it may be successful, my opinion is it has a limited run on it, but it just feels so sweaty and gross. And if you're lucky enough, especially because you and I <clears throat> hang in the same crowd, and uh, that was not a throat clearing for emphasis, that was just a throat yeah. clearing. There are so many amazing people that we were able to meet and hang out with and I look back now at that as sort of our crew that were our friends. So why be a dick about it and work those relationships? I think you have situations now that have organically grown through just being a cool guy and a friend and smart and funny. And I, I think that might be the slower path to success, but I think it's a much better path, much healthier. You know, I've, I've been thinking about that a lot lately because I think that the reason I'm able to do this particular podcast and also my serious radio show with Ahmed Zappa mm -hmm. is a result of, of everything that you're talking about. Because I've been so fortunate to be around so many great people. And now when I say, hey, do you want to do my podcast? I get zero pushback. I just yeah. get like, when? When can we do this? Of course. And uh, I, I, that's a great payoff because I will say this to you. Of all the things that I've done or tried to do here in the city – Doing this podcast and the show with Amit, bar none, the f my favorite thing to do. There's nothing I would rather do than spend the kind of time that we're spending right now. It's the funnest thing. And, and for me, it's sort of the best way to use my own strange talents. It was almost like the podcasting thing was, was invented for me. Mm -hmm. um, I got into the game late, but mm -hmm. the great Dave Anthony said to me, don't worry about that. You know, just do this for fun and for free right now Yep, and have fun doing it. You know, see where it goes. If yep. it leads to fortune and fame, great. If it doesn't, who the fuck cares? Because there's nothing more fun than sitting down with someone like you and talking about Rush. Yeah, but but uh, I've always been an advocate, whether it's right or wrong. If you make stuff, there's stuff you make for a paycheck or because it's an opportunity. But in my experience, if you make stuff because you're into it and you're creating it and you're getting an idea out of your head, like your podcast or the show you're doing with Amit, that's the most fun. Because if you didn't get a penny from it, you're having a blast taking something in your brain and making it a real thing. And if people respond, you're like, holy shit, is that cool? I had this idea and now it's a real thing and I'm having a blast. The bonus is you get paid to do it. But if you do stuff just for the cash then you're going to be trying to hit this bullseye that is not realistic. And uh, that's why you're enjoying this so much. And I'm the same way. You know, I, there's the, the most fun jobs I've ever had have either been ones that friends of mine and I have done as a goof, or we did it for a reason other than cash. And generally 
the biggest nightmare jobs I've had have been the best paying ones. Listen to these words, people, because I, I truly, I believe that a lot of this, this Rob's attitude is the only way to survive in the city of Los Angeles. Because if you measure your success by the paychecks, your creative output and what you're paid for, you will be crushed like a bug. Influenced by the modern sounds of the early 80s and bands like Ultravox and The Police, Rush released the platinum-selling album Signals in September of 1982. It is their last album produced by their longtime associate Terry Brown, who had worked with the band since 1974. The album peaked at number one in Canada, good job Canada, and number 10 in the United States. More importantly, on February 11th, 1983, I can't believe I wrote this, Rush opened the second leg of the Signals tour in Albuquerque, New Mexico. This album would feature more synthesizers than previous LPs, and that style would change, uh, would show up on Rush's albums through the rest of the 80s, including Grace Under Pressure, Power Windows, and Hold Your Fire. God damn it, do I love Signals. Uh, my brother and I, I'll just tell this quick story, because Albuquerque is not much bigger than Calgary. Mm-hmm. Desert town, high desert town, beautiful mountains in the background. We All the shows in Albuquerque happened at the Tingley Coliseum uh, on the New Mexico State Fairgrounds, which are smack dab in the very center of the city, not far from where the legendary Mark Marin went to high school. Mm-hmm. You could, we could t- Before we were all driving, we could take the city bus to the state fairgrounds and then get a ride home uh, from our mom, who would pick us up at the McDonald's on the corner of uh, San Pedro and Lomas after the show was over. So I took my brother to the Signals tour. We took the bus, and because back then, the Tingley Coliseum was a rodeo arena, mm-hmm. one of the biggest biggest rodeo arenas in the Southwest. And, um, you know, rodeo on the weekends, uh, Triumph, Rush, ACDC, Van Halen, Dio at night. But, but it was general admission. There were no assigned seats. So if you wanted a good seat or a spot on the floor, you had to get in line at like two or three o'clock in the afternoon. So my brother and I were literally one of the first people, tiny, teeny, tiny. I didn't grow until I was almost through college. Uh, Teeny, two teeny, tiny little dudes. there at the front of the line. They open up the rodeo gates and we ran, ran, ran and got amazing seats. And uh, it's still one of my favorite shows that I've ever seen. That's amazing that, that Albuquerque would get so many major acts. Well, because I'll tell you why. Uh, and people who've listened to this podcast before have heard this, uh, I believe, a time or two. But, you know, it's between Dallas and Phoenix. Oh, yeah. So, or it's between Los Angeles and Texas. Uh, you know, all the, the bands would go through. We never got the huge acts. We did not get the Who, the Rolling Stones, Bruce Springsteen, you know, the big giant touring acts. Yeah. But we got everybody else. And Albuquerque, New Mexico, our Native American brothers fucking love metal. So all the metal bands came. And for me, like culturally, the interesting thing about going to shows in Albuquerque was the crowd was a third white, a third New Mexican, and a third Native American. Mm-hmm. And it was like really one of the few places where those cultures would mix and yeah. celebrate together. And it's to me, a really cool thing. We also had two really crazy radio stations, 94 Rock and Rock 108, which played all that stuff. Our stations were not like KLOS 95.5 in Los right. Angeles. They fucking played Maiden, Priest, Rush, 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 Rush all day. Wow. So, you know, this was on the radio. Not, and it wasn't like other American cities because, you know, New Mexico is a metal, a metal state. Yeah. That's a, what an amazing opportunity. 
Yeah, it was cool. And actually, in the in recent years, I've actually gone back to New Mexico a, a few times to go see Iron Maiden, wow. uh, specifically, and Black Sabbath, because it's like being in a in a time warp. Yeah. A couple of years ago, uh, for one of the Iron Maiden shows, I sat next to a family, uh, a Native American family from one of the Pueblos, you know, like two hours outside of Albuquerque. And I got talking to the guy. He was there with his mom, who was in her 80s. Wow. He was my age. We just started talking, and we were at all the same shows in the eighties, and wow. it was just like such a cool experience that I had that night, you know. And because when you're in those crowds, like if you're in a maiden show in New Mexico, your family, you know, what yeah, I mean? amazing. That's me being a nerd. All right, let me. <laughs> okay. I want to. <laughs> I want to ask. When do you feel like the city really sort of broke your way in, in a fun way, like c- career wise? Los Angeles. Yeah, I mean, I I would I measure. I'm making air quotes around the word career, but um, I really have to say the first big thing that helped that and that really made me think I could make a go as it was um, I was a writer on the Ben Stiller show. Mm. Uh, And that was this amazing group of people that, you know, the show again, it was like the odds were so stacked against it. The network hated us. We're the lowest rated show on TV and everybody knew it was going to get canceled. So it just people focused inward and we became this group of friends that knew the clock was ticking. So let's make the most insane fun stuff we could. And that gave me so much enthusiasm to keep pursuing it because that was my first staff job. Um, and it was, again, the early 90s, just because I'm an old man. And uh, you just had opportunities explode on these multicam sitcoms and other shows that they were making tons of. And, uh, I think the, the, the sort of cult, uh, hip factor of that show really greased the wheels that in a way that I'm so appreciative of. So th- I would say that's probably the first real moment. Well, I would say this as someone who's in Los Angeles, you know, I get here in the S- September of 1990, the Ben Stiller show, Mr. Show, you combine those two things. And I think that they truly launch what becomes the alternative comedy scene mm-hmm. in Los Angeles, which is tangentially how I know you Yeah, uh, with all of these incredible performers and writers. Um, they would get together at night and perform in these little crazy coffee shops, mm-hmm. uh, the, the Onyx in Los Feliz, Pedro's on Vermont in Los Feliz. Mm-hmm. This is before Largo. Uh, you know, you've got Ginny Garofalo, Dana Gould, yourself, um, David Pat Cross, Oswald, David Cross, uh, all of Otis these Kirk. like insane people doing uh, their own, putting their own spin on stand up, and creating this horrifically rich scene of people. You know, my I, uh, CJ Arabia, a, a friend of mine, posted a video. Um, it was an early '90s video of a bunch of people hanging out at the manager Dave Rath's house. Yes, and all it is are people now who are basically in charge of American comedy. Yeah. You know, at this weird house, I bet you know where Dave Rath's house was in the early I 90s. I was at those parties, yes. I know you were because you're in the yeah. video. Yeah, yeah. Where Was that in Sherman Oaks or was that in... Yeah, it was... Uh, there were two houses. He was living in uh, this manager, Rick Messina's place in the Valley. So I think it's either that one or his old house on Willow Glen. But um, yeah, that was like our clubhouse. And... Uh, it would people would swim or play basketball. There'd be impromptu jam sessions in the garage. Uh, it depends if there's a swimming pool and a little bridge. It's the Valley House. If yeah. there's weird sort of concrete outdoor patios, that's the Willow Glen House. But yeah, it was like every person there 
you would not believe like, oh yeah, in a few years, you're going to be this person. Yeah. Like, because it was just those parties. But again, but that's as power, a it's a powerful, oh, it's a powerful group of people. And it seemed to me as an outsider of that specific Largo group, uh, even though I dipped my toe in Largo later in the nineties, it, it just seemed like I'm sure that there was crazy competition. I'm sure mm-hmm. that there was anger when someone gets a deal and someone gets a deal and someone thinks that, that person shouldn't have a deal. But at the same time, it was a really vibrant group of people who were creating together. Yeah. And like you said, the Ben Stiller show lives on uh, in history as one of the, like one of the most amazing things that was ever put together. And for you to have that experience as a young writer, I mean, what an incredible thing because oh, amazing. You, know, you didn't get your head kicked in. You didn't get your hopes crushed by working for a monster. You know, you're on a show which Mm -hmm. stands the test of time. Speaking of Largo, 1987's Hold Your Fire features Rush's only true guest on a song, and that is singer-songwriter Amy Mann singing the chorus on Time Stand Still. Rush continued to record and tour through the 90s until life sort of forced them to take a break. In the span of 12 months, Neil Peart lost his daughter to a car accident and his wife to cancer. As part of his healing process, Peart went on a motorcycle ride that took him from Canada to Alaska, then down to Belize. This is a 55,000 mile ride. During the ride, chronicled in Peart's book, Ghost Ride, Travels on the Healing Road, Peart found a renewed spirit to record and tour again. Rush returned to the studio in 2001, and they released Vapor Trails in 2002. They continued to tour and record constantly until their final show on August 1st, 2015 at the Forum in Inglewood. Rob and I were both there. Yep. Sadly, 40 years of constant touring and insane drumming had left Peart in tremendous physical pain. Thus, the band was forced into a semi-early retirement. Neil Peart then died from an aggressive form of brain cancer on January 7th, 2020. Fuck you, 2020. The outpouring of emotions and tributes from artists around the globe showed the true reach of Peart's influence on rock and roll. Uh, I cried. I will admit that I cried. I cried on the day that Eddie Van Halen died. I cried uh, on the day that Neil Peart uh, died. Uh, Brian Bessane texted me on both of those days within seconds of me finding out, I think on mm-hmm. Twitter, on Twitter for both uh, colossal giants in my life. Yeah. And uh, Brian texted me right away like, dude, are you crying? You know? Yeah, horrible. Yeah, horrible. fuck you 2020. 2020 can eat a hot bag of dicks. <laughs> <laughs> Yet, uh, I mean, hopefully there's light. I mean, truly, when we look back on this year, yeah, uh, there's not been a year in my life, even with my parents' divorce in 1980, you know, there's not been a year like 2020. So what are you doing to get through the madness? I generally, uh, hopefully am a positive thinker. So there's only 365 days of diarrhea in 2020. So we're getting to the tail end of that big shitty puddle. And certainly with Trump getting the fuck out of, uh, the white house will be helpful. Sorry to swear. But, uh, just, you know, again, trying to make sure people are healthy, use this time to pursue some weird projects that I've had in the back of my head forever and come out of it, you know, to try to get some of them going to do cool stuff. You know, there's like a few very weird things that 
some mutual friends and I, that you know, and I know have been talking about, and we're going to actually try to do one next month. And I just think that would be the greatest way to, you know, smear 2020 away is to start 2021 with something cool you're excited about. And yeah, it just happens. It's like, to me, it's like working on a nightmare TV show where you're like, Oh shit, I signed on for 22 episodes. It's episode three. I can see the rest is going to be hellish, but I signed a contract. So I'm going to just smile my way through it. And, um, that's literally the way that I've been approaching this is like, just stay cool and it'll end. There'll be other problems, but it'll end. Yeah. The showrunner is an asshole, but, but by April, I'm out of here. Right. Totally. (laughs) Totally. Oh my God, Rob, we've been chatting for an hour and two minutes. I, there's no rush. We, no pun intended as much as you need me, whatever you need, but it's, it's been a pleasure. It is. It's a great honor for me to do this with you again. This is how I want to spend my time doing that. Is there anything else that you want to promote out there as we, Uh, as we wrap things up and round third base here? Here's what I would just say. Uh, in the business, it's called dovetailing. I would say if anybody wants to know how cool rush is and how great SCTV was, listen to take off by Bob and Doug McKenzie, because you have Bob and Doug McKenzie and Getty Lee singing a song that is not only a stupid song, but a great song with Getty Lee, who's not only hilarious on it, but great singing on it. And when strange brew came out, that was one of the greatest films ever. It's it's my Lawrence of Arabia. And that song sums up my childhood because it is, uh, you know, a sliver of this and a sliver of this. And uh, again, like rush is they could do no wrong. And again, like we said at the beginning, it's three guys making all that sound. Like there's a lot of power trios out there, but it's those guys doing those songs. And like, I know you've done with other shows. If you play, a rush song, a certain song, it it's a time machine and you remember exactly where you were, but the energy of you then is exactly what happens now. And that to me is the trademark of a, a kick-ass eternal band. Well said, and we're going to play takeoff as we <laughs> end things here on the Brando cast. Rob, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I thank cannot you. wait to do your particular show. Thank you. Again, thank you for giving me the gift of your time and your presence. Anytime. Uh, this is a blast. Great. It was great. Uh, we, we should do our own show together. Yeah, I um, love it. You're great. <laughs> thank you. And to the rest of you, thank you so much for listening to the Brando cast, for liking, subscribing, leaving dumb reviews on Apple. We appreciate everything. And of course, the Brando cast is produced by Mr. Richard Sheltinga. So until the next time, cats and kittens. That's our topic for today. So good day. Good day. Such a hoser. There's no way I'll ever do another record with you, hoser. Okay, that's fine. I'll do a solo.